This is The Culture Code with Kevin Cruz, founder and CEO of LeadX, the platform that helps you scale and sustain a high-performance culture. Hello, everyone. I'm Kevin Cruz. Welcome to The Culture Code. Our guest today is the Chief People Officer at Collective Health, Abby Buck. Abby, welcome. Thanks for joining us. Thank you so much for having me, Kevin. I really appreciate it. Now, I commented before I started recording that you have a beautiful background. Where are you joining us today? Where are you doing this podcast from? Well, I am taking advantage of the fact that it is Friday and I am up in the Sierras in California. So near Lake Tahoe. Yeah, it's um, I was born in Southern California, still have tons of friends and family there. And I was just talking to my daughter about how California is one of those rare states where you could say, hey, it's Saturday, let's go to the beach. It's Sunday, let's go to the mountains. And just a beautiful area, like an ideal area that you live in. So congrats on that. Yes, thank you, thank you. (laughs) So let's just start with um, Collective Health. For those who aren't familiar with your company, what do you guys do? Sure. So we are a healthcare technology company. We have about 750 employees right now. And we are focused on fundamentally making health benefits work better for everyone. And that really starts with the millions of Americans who are covered through their employer. So we know that the healthcare system in the US is convoluted and costly. And the burden of navigating, understanding, paying for healthcare typically falls to the individual. And that can really lead to poor utilization. It can lead to unnecessary cost and frankly, poor healthcare outcomes for people. And I think we all have probably know someone either in our family or amongst our friends who have really had to work hard to advocate for themselves in that system. And Collective Health wants to change that. And we do that through proprietary and highly configurable technology. We have a robust partner ecosystem and frankly, industry leading member advocacy that is intended to simplify the health benefit plan administration for self-insured employers and those that want a better and higher quality healthcare experience for their employees and their employees' families. This is incredible and important work. And when I was just doing prep for this interview, Abby, I was on your website and was blown away by the 70 net promoter score that you have, because most of us in a normal health insurance or health system. I mean, we're not given NPSs of 70s in this country. Oh, no. In some cases, they're negative. Of course. And most people don't know this about me. Decades ago, I started a sort of a conference, a group that lasted for about five years. It was called ePatient Connections. It was all (laughs) about the empowerment, the advocacy that patients have to sometimes, unfortunately, do for themselves. So it's great that you have, you know, a great practice in that area as well. That's such important work. Absolutely. Abby, we're talking about culture today. And before we dive into it, I know kind of paramount or top of mind for many CPOs is just still this hybrid work, remote first, et cetera. And there's no one right way. Otherwise, we'd already be all doing it the same way. And we're not. So before we talk about culture, where have you landed on that issue at Collective Health? So we have landed on a hybrid arrangement where we're asking employees to come into the office 
two to three days a week and then work from home. And our rationale for that really is to, like many companies, sort of balance the strong employee preference for having maximum flexibility and the need, particularly in our business, it's both a product and a service. And so there is a really high degree of collaboration that is required across the company that we feel is served by having people see each other in person. Makes a lot of sense. When you think about company culture, everybody's culture is different, but culture can be kind of hard to put a finger on, hard to describe, but I'm gonna ask you to try. So (laughs) to an outsider such as myself, how would you describe the culture of your company? Yes, it is a hard question to answer, especially in a few words, but I did, I thought about it and I would describe us as, first of all, mission-driven. I would say if you asked 100 employees why they're at Collective Health, 100 would say that part of the reason they're here is because of the mission of the company. They feel it really resonates with them. Then I would say customer-focused. And, you know, I will tell you, I have never, we were in an all hands yesterday and we were telling some customer stories and I actually cried because we're talking about people in their most vulnerable moments. And I don't think I've ever cried about something that we have done. I've cried about things that companies have done for employees, but the impact on members is really, really heartwarming and important. And then I would say last two words, curious and collaborative. Curious and collaborative. So I'm sure part of sustaining, fostering this culture, you know, comes from culture fit, culture add of, you know, in the hiring process. But what else are you doing to make sure that the new joiners kind of get the culture and are behaving in ways that, you know, support that kind of culture? Yeah, no, it's a great question and one that we spend a lot of time thinking about, especially in a growth stage company where you're constantly changing and evolving. So, you know, like most companies, we start with the basics and really believe that nurturing culture, it is multidimensional. There is not just one thing. So we start with the basics and those include things like anchoring on values and then reinforcing those values through levers like peer recognition. Another thing that we do that is, you know, unique to this company is at every monthly all hands, we share customer and member love, we call them love letters, and they are direct feedback from clients and members to reinforce our values and that customer focus and share the impact that we're having down to the individual level, as I said. I mean, I was teary yesterday because it's so profound. Yeah, I'm always listening for (laughs) stealable ideas, you know, that (laughs) that anyone can take. And you actually gave me a stealable idea because even at LeadX, you know, we're a tiny company, we have Slack and we have a Slack channel for when customers say nice things, send, send us a nice note. And it was just yesterday, I was like, where is that channel? What's it called? And um, finally, I'm like, oh, yeah, it's just customer feedback. It's like so boring. Customer feedback, you know, like that. <laughs> Love letters. So I'm going to hang up on this as soon as we're done. And I'm going to tell our Slack visitor, change that to customer love letters. <laughs> I love them. And then uh, let me just add, because there's some other stuff that we've been doing that I think is also really important. So you've got the basics and you really need to reinforce those sort of core values of the company. But I think, you know, I, along with the rest of the executive team is cognizant of the fact that 
there's a need to both preserve, but also evolve culture over time. And as we get bigger, just as an example, it's more challenging to stay, you know, coordinated and collaborate with the right people at the right time. And that's a challenge for any growing business. So we've done a lot of work focused around our internal sort of ways of working. And specific examples include things that are frankly, they're easy to say, but they're sometimes really hard to do well consistently. And so we've refined and clarified the purpose of internal key meetings, operating meetings, and the attendees for those meetings. And then coming out of those meetings, what are the key messages that need to be received by others in the company who weren't in attendance? And that requires shared clarity. It requires intentionality. And we've been doing a lot of work around that. We have more work to do. I don't think that this is ever done. But these types of efforts really help us improve collaboration, communication, and then aligning on outcomes and accountabilities. And that also is really important for us, right? So we don't leave meetings and have people, everyone pointing in different directions about who's on first. So given in my mind that culture shows up in the minutia of every day, these are the types of efforts that I think are really, they're subtle, but so critical to both the nurturing of culture, but also the evolving of culture. Because what you pay attention to ends up being part of your culture. Okay. So much gold there, Abby. I've got to dig into this. <laughs> a little bit. I want to dig for the gold. First of all, I think it's genius that you talk about with culture, it's not just preserve, but preserve and evolve, especially in a growing, in a growth stage organization. With all these interviews I do, no one's ever, like, people should really challenge me more. It's like, Kevin, it's not just about preserving it, you know, Fosha, it's preserve it and evolve it in the right direction. And the fact that you're dove right into, like you said, the minutiae, your word, it's, you're talking about operationalizing aspects that drive culture. In the LeadX survey of employee engagement, manager effectiveness, I've been doing this for 30 years, and it was about three or four years ago where for the first time, meeting efficiency, that's our label, meeting efficiency showed up as a top 10 driver of employee engagement. People always complain about meetings, right? Uh, too many yes. meetings, too long of meetings, too boring of meetings, whatever it is. But I think post-pandemic, it's more critical than ever before. It's hard to do good virtual meetings. When people are in the office, you want that time to count, et cetera. So this is fascinating that the example you gave was really looking at the meeting. Meeting efficiency is my word, not yours, but you know some of the operational aspects of those meetings. And I'm curious, Abby, like, was it sort of just like, is it a casual thing of, hey, everybody, like, let's just be more thoughtful about who we're inviting to meetings because we don't want to waste their time. And let's be more thoughtful about accountability, who does what? Or is it like pretty specific? Like, oh, no, 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 we've got this monthly whatever meeting, fill in the blank. Let's make sure at the end we write out, here's the action items and there's going to be one name on each list. Like how detailed do you go with it? Right. No, it's um, thanks for the follow up question. So I would say it depends on the meeting. So I'll give you two examples. So we have a monthly company operating review. And in that we it used to include effectively sort of all of leadership, all directors and above. And we decided that that was it was becoming just ungainly. Uh, it was hard to manage that number of people and sort of get to the right depth in these conversations. And so 
we then narrowed it very substantially. It went from, you know, maybe 50 attendees to 15. And then we have tasked those folks with, first of all, we'll, we, the ops team will summarize sort of key takeaways from the meeting and then give it to the attendees who are then tasked and really responsible for cascading those messages. So um, we do try to, we try to be really crystal clear with the messages, the key takeaways, at least at a sort of, you know, holistically. And then there may be things that are specific to a particular team that they could elaborate on, but really trying to just make it easy for leaders to do that, right? It's about trying to remove the friction from it and trying to remove all of the interpretation that we each bring to any given topic. I'll give you another example with our, we have sort of like a product council meeting where we review progress against our technology roadmap. And on, on that one, the key players have been identified, right? So if, if we're working on something related to our value story for clients, we know who's involved in that and who is accountable for the work. And so it's less about discussing that stuff or assigning action items, which we will do in the operating review, but more about, hey, are we all aligned on this? And if we're making trade-offs, are the right people in the discussion to make those trade-offs and prioritize customer needs. And so that'll take a little bit of a different flavor, but we've been really intentional about who is in those meetings so that those types of conversations can happen. And then we've all summarized and understood and documented what's been agreed to. Uh, that's great, great stuff. Let me shift gears, as you know, uh, from prior podcast shows. I'm passionate about leadership development because leaders are critical culture carriers, culture champions, driving employee engagement. You're a pretty small company, though. You know, I'm, I don't know for sure, but I'm guessing you might have, depending on span of control, like 100 frontline managers, give or take. Yeah, roughly. Yep, roughly. exactly. <laughs> yeah, yeah. You tell I've been doing it a while. Uh, yes. <laughs> so you don't have the resources of a Fortune 500 to just throw at, you know, supporting and developing these frontline leaders. So what are you doing? Yes, it's an excellent question. So from a management development perspective, and let me just say, I'm in violent agreement with you about like, this is such a critical group to look after. I mean, everybody is a first line manager to someone. However, like our sort of true first line managers, I mean, that is a hard job. And so it is so important, I think, to start with core management training just to set them up for success. And, you know, we have a mix of people who have sort of grown up here professionally. We've just rung in our 10th year anniversary to people who are very seasoned leaders, but we really do start with the core. How do you, I mean, just basic things, I call them management 101, right? How do you give effective feedback? How do you make sure that you're delegating effectively? How do you support the development of your team members, et cetera, et cetera? And so we do all of that, but you're right. We don't, I mean, I think back to my days at, you know, IBM or PayPal or eBay or Splunk and gosh, I mean, we had more resources, right? We were just, they were much bigger companies. <laughs> so one thing that we've done and it's tailored to our needs, but we have, you know, we operate in an incredibly complex industry. And the learning curve for people who aren't expert in healthcare is steep. And so one of the things that we've done for all managers is we've implemented a program that's really intended to build acumen 
around our industry and our business. And we do it with all managers, regardless of what department they're in. And it covers everything from healthcare 101 and healthcare economics to how we position ourselves externally. How do we sell to clients? It's very well attended. And then we've also sort of much like this webcast or this podcast, we've been able to record that for posterity so that as we have a sort of ever-changing management team, ever-growing management team that we can, you know, others can tap into that as well. And so that's one place where we've gotten scrappy just because we're smaller, but I think really filled a need for the company to build business acumen amongst that group. The success that your company has had, you can't have a successful outcome in the long term without a successful culture. I just think that's true. So you just sort of know there's some success there. But what are you doing to get actual feedback, quantitative or qualitative, sure. about culture? I know you had mentioned, I think it was monthly all hands that mm -hmm. you, you had just had. I know that's one form. What else are you doing? So we do poll surveys every quarter. And those are, we ask two standard questions around engagement and belonging. And then each quarter we have thematic questions and additional two to three questions that we ask. And uh, they are sort of precursors to what's ahead in the business. So for instance, in the next survey, we will ask people about their experiences with being supported by their manager from a performance and development perspective. And that will be very helpful feedback for us as we then head into our performance cycle so that we can then use that data and prime managers to show up in the very best way for their team members. That's an example. So we do pulse, we do do monthly all hands. We do exit interviews with everyone. Those are automated. However, we'll, we also will follow up where there's opportunity to sort of dig in and understand something a little bit more deeply. We'll do live exit interviews as well. And then during our performance cycle, Employees also have an opportunity to provide upward and peer feedback. And so that's another sort of rich area of feedback in terms of people's experiences every day. That's great. I love it that you talked about the pulse surveys as using them as sort of precursors to things that are going on in the company. And it reminds me of the analogy. A lot of companies still are resistant to doing quarterly or pulse surveys, even if they're short, which frustrates me because I think quarterly, if you're going to report your financials quarterly, why aren't you getting, you know, people metrics quarterly? And the PL, your financials, I always say that's like the rear view mirror. You know, that's what just happened the previous mm -hmm. 12 weeks, you know, financially. A good poll survey is looking out the front window. It is. This is predicting what we're about ready to face. And if you've got great employee engagement scores, you're probably going to have high productivity and low turnover. That's <laughs> right. Bad ones, you're going <laughs> to see the opposite. And so it's really that is the a good pulse survey can look ahead and give you data that will shape that future. Not a lot of tools can do that. And I like that a lot. You've already shared so many good things, but is there any other special initiative or program or anything that you're especially proud of or got good results? I'm looking for more things to steal, Abby. I'm just <laughs> shameless about it. I'm happy. Steal away. I love stealing as well. Uh, <laughs> one thing, and I mean, frankly, I stole this from experiences I had had at other companies, but, you know, being in a growth stage company is, and I'm sure you can appreciate this, um, given your role in your company, it's not always for the faint of heart, right? I mean, it can be a really intense environment. 
And so one of the things that I introduced uh, last year, which I'm very proud of, is the notion of having a sabbatical, allowing employees after five years of employment to take a dedicated chunk of time off just to recharge and recommit. And we have, you know, we're 10 years old and we are adding new people all the time. So it's not, we don't have an avalanche of people taking it every year, but gosh, it's been really well received and everybody has returned. And the power of that, because I know people get worried, oh, if people take a sabbatical, they're going to leave. That has not been my experience at two companies now. And it's really been fantastic. It's re-energizing, it's recommitting, and obviously it's well-received and it's a great recruiting tool as well. Mm. Do you recall a sabbatical that someone's taken and most people just sort of like, you know, renovate their kitchen for a few months or does anybody (laughs) go off and learn to, you know, climb a mountain or something else? Oh yeah. I mean, even I have had the opportunity to take a sabbatical at another company and I traveled with my family. I know people who have dedicated, if you take four weeks, they've done a week for themselves, a week with family, a week with friends, and then a week just to sort of putz around the house as examples. And so they've done things like a silent retreat, a special trip with their family, time with friends. And so people get really creative with them. It's fun to hear the stories. Yeah, Abby, you just tickled some neurons as you talk about that of like breaking down the time, whether it's four weeks or something else, into different almost themes, like for self, family, right. friends. I had never thought about that before. And I don't know if he still does it, but this old story about Bill Gates, as busy as he was back when in the Microsoft days, he'd always take a think week where it was just himself mm-hmm. in a cabin with a stack of books and papers or whatever to like think ahead. And I've often, as you said, it's growth stage companies, it's million things going on, right? I cannot imagine sitting in a cabin alone for a week just reading. <laughs> me, me neither. But. but you've given me an idea of like, okay, if I take some extended time, it doesn't have to be like, quote unquote, selfish me time, or oh, it's the family vacation time. Like there's ways to chunk it into a few different things. I, I really like that idea a lot. So actually, you know, where that inspiration came from is The person that I had first heard of doing that or first knew who did that was John Donahoe, who was the CEO at eBay and is now the CEO at Nike. And he spent his sabbatical at eBay doing those, doing that sort of thematic sabbatical. Oh, that's great. Yeah, he's legendary in the business and startup world. Absolutely. Absolutely. We have come to the part of the interview where I try to, you know, shift over to some more fun questions, maybe a little shorter type questions. And the first one's like, imagine you could, you know, send any any book or podcast or something to all your colleagues and they were guaranteed to read it, to consume it, to take it to heart. What would you send people? I knew you were going to ask me this question and it was hard to choose, honestly. Are you a big reader? I am mostly for pleasure, honestly, yeah. but I do, you know, I sprinkle in workbooks as well. And what I would say, I'd offer a classic, or at least that I think is a classic, which is The Advantage by Patrick Lencioni. Oh, yeah. And one of the reasons I love that book is, first of all, for crystallizing the concept of team number one. And it's been highly resonant with me recently just because, as I said, we require a high degree of collaboration to put forward a product and service experience that is cohesive and connected. And 
people often think of team number one as the team that you're reporting into, right? And not necessarily that cross-functional team that is delivering something together. And so I love the concept of that team number one and also the importance of clarity. As I said, we've been spending a lot of time on clarity and it's such a helpful touchstone right now when I think about sort of cross-functional leadership effectiveness, right? Even a simple prompt, for example, okay, what have we agreed to? And then to whom does it need to be communicated? And it is amazing how quickly that can root out varying interpretations or misunderstandings about what we've actually agreed to. <laughs> yeah. yeah. And, and so like many things in my world, for me, the book just speaks to things that are easy to say, but hard to do well or hard to do consistently. Yeah. And you raise, um, first of all, gold star for not automatically doing the Lencioni book, Five Dysfunctions, right? So that's <laughs> the normal uh, knee-jerk reaction one. But this idea of also being, for any manager, for any leader, pausing to really think about who your first team is and or how you're showing up, what your level of responsibility is to different teams. Sometimes in the engagement work we do, we'll see a company that overall, well, let's just talk about a team. The team's engagement score is rock bottom, really low. And yet the manager has a very high manager effectiveness or MNPS uh, score. And often, you know, back when I was young and dumb, it's like, oh, wow, you know, a great leader in a tough environment. It's like, maybe, or that's a leader who thinks his or her first team is the direct reports rather than the people who are sending them the check. And so it's really easy to be a popular boss, right? You know, it's to be like, yeah, we have to roll out, you know, y'all have to switch from this tool to that tool. It stinks, I hate it too. Wasn't my decision, right? Right. It's so easy to blame the board, blame the CEO, blame the home office, blame marketing, right? It's really easy to be a popular boss if you want to be. It's harder to be a boss that drives engagement, especially in tough times. And just understanding the team that reports you, the team of peers, the team of the, the company, it's a really good thought exercise and something worth talking about. Let me ask you this, Abby. So... <laughs> With all the experience you've had as chief people officer, I'm sure you do things and think of things differently today than on day one. Mm-hmm. So imagine if uh, you were sending a Slack message or a Teams message, whatever you're using, to a younger version of yourself. What advice would you give to like the day one chief people officer, Abby Buck? Oh, yeah, it's a good question. And I happened to start this gig right at the beginning of the pandemic. So you. it's been a great learning journey. And we know, right, people leaders over the last several years have had such a moment in terms of helping companies navigate a tumultuous period and um, in this sort of incredible change management journey that we've been on. And obviously pandemic and return to office being top of mind when I say that. So what I would say to my younger self is, yes, you're accustomed to working in a very ambiguous environment and not necessarily having all the facts and trying to piece together the puzzle of what will be most impactful for employees who have a gazillion different opinions and needs What I would say is this whole journey has reinforced for me first principles thinking. And that is something, I mean, I got to it quickly, but it's almost 
like a mantra now, much more so than it was in the past where, you know, when we think about, you know, our decisions about whatever it is, vaccine policy, business direction, uh, return to office plans, or, you know, any number of other topics, right? It's important to ask sort of what is most important? What are you solving for? And how is that prioritized? How do these actions square with our values? And it can be incredibly clarifying. We knew, for example, when we implemented a vaccine policy that required vaccinations, that it was going to be controversial. We operate in, you know, California and Utah and Texas, and not everybody's in agreement with these decisions. But for us as a healthcare company, we were sort of data driven about that and felt that that was the best way to keep our employees safe. And the safety and well-being of our employees was a first principle for us as we were thinking about that. And so we were prepared to sort of take the heat for that decision, knowing where where we were grounded. So that's one of those things where I've become almost obsessive about it, um, whereas maybe in the past I was not as much. Yeah, I think the idea of first principles thinking is certainly more popular in the Silicon Valley tech company community. I really don't hear it in most other industries, parts of the country. And I think that's a shame because it's almost it's useful as a personal tool as well. I mean, I think too often any decision, you know, if it's not automatic, there's going to be pros and cons. There's going to be winners or losers or people with different opinions. Right. But rather than like weighing the outcomes and all that, go back to the first principle. Like, what are you really trying to solve for and from what position? And it can get clear things up quite a bit. Abby, we're doing this interview. It's the middle of November. We're a week away from Thanksgiving. So I know you already have your people plan for next year laid out. What are you and your team going to really prioritize or lean into more for next year? Right. So... Um, we are really leaned into enabling the growth of the business, right? I mean, that just broadly speaking, just occupies a lot of my attention. So, you know, scaling a business, it's everything from enabling growth through expanding our real estate footprint, which um, seems odd to say, but we are because we are, you know, it is a hybrid workforce to making sure that we're talking about what capabilities we need, not just now, but in the future. So a lot of focus on talent and the capabilities that we need to support our growth. And then, you know, everything from that to some of the business work to build, you know, new capability, the innovation and expansion of products that support our ability to take on an ever-increasing number of very large clients. And so, you know, it's all about growth for me, and it's a it's a fantastic place to be. It's fun. Um, that is really fun and rewarding work, and that is what we are focused on for the next year. Growth problems are the best problems. <laughs> they are problem. still problems, but they're better than the <laughs> other kind of problems. <laughs> and uh, what about you know what's exciting you most about collective health? Clearly, there's growth and change going on. But anything particular that um, we should all be excited about in the year ahead? You know, for me, I'm just so proud of the work that we've done to really bring this mission to life. And I, I told you, I mean, we've we just rang in our 10th anniversary and, we, you know, we know so many startups fail and to have gotten this far and know that it's really resonating with people, both individuals on the member servicing side, but also with clients for me, you know, and among among the many details I could highlight 
you know, as the target customer too, which is another really fun part of my role, right? We are selling to HR leaders and also finance leaders to some extent. Obviously, it's a big line item on a on a balance sheet. We are making a difference in terms of uh, managing the trend of cost over time. We are beating industry standard on that. And that is so important for everyone. I mean, these are expensive pieces of employee compensation. And to add that value to clients feels so great. Yeah, I'm again, you guys are doing amazing work, as you said, whether it's a startup or other small mid-sized business, it's harder than ever before, you know, uh, out there. And I'm, you know, I think entrepreneurs, small business people are really heroes of the economy and society and healthcare costs and providing value is just so critical. So we're going to leave it on that note. I'm glad you're out there doing the work you're doing. Abby, thanks for spending time on a Friday afternoon giving me and others stealable ideas. Thanks my for the time. My pleasure. My pleasure. <laughs> Excellent. Hey, thanks for listening to this episode of the Culture Code Podcast. Are you looking to build, refine, or revamp a training program? We team up with companies like Northwestern Mutual, Cineos Health, and Duck Creek Technologies to roll out highly engaging training series for emerging leaders, new managers, women in leadership, high potential managers, sales enablement, and more. Check it out at leadx.org. What makes these series so uniquely engaging? We help you build a full system of development that leverages our cutting edge platform and world-class training. We blend together world-class cohort-based virtual training and group coaching, personalized nudges, micro-learning, and on-demand office hour style coaching. Go check it out at leadx.org.